One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Thanks for downloading this podcast of NewsHour Extra. It was first broadcast on Friday, October the 23rd. BBC World Service, this is NewsHour Extra with Owen Bennett-Jones, broadcasting this week from the Icelandic capital Reykjavik, which has been hosting a major international conference on the Arctic. And there are disputes about when humans first got to the North Pole, uh, 1908, some say, 1909 maybe, maybe later. Uh, Lots of other North Pole records, first flight, 1926, first to parachute there, 1949, first people to dive under it, 1998, and first to walk there exclusively on snowshoes, 2006. But 2007, probably the most eye-catching first, the first person to plant a national flag on the seabed under the North Pole. It was made of titanium, and it was put there by a Russian. It's been described as the home to the next great game. Many say that's hyperbole, and we'll talk about that in the second half of the programme. But we're going to just start with the changes in the Arctic which explain why more and more governments are becoming more and more interested in it. And let me just introduce, first of all, our panel. We've got Lassie Heinenen, who is a professor at the University of Lapland. He has a lot of other academic associations. He's widely acknowledged as a leading expert on the Arctic, as is Heather Exner-Piro. She's a strategist for outreach and indigenous engagement at the University of Saskatchewan and managing editor of the Arctic Yearbook Journal. We have Rebecca Pincus, who's a distinguished visiting professor of maritime policy at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. And currently, she's got a Fulbright to do research in Iceland, so she's based here in Reykjavik. And we also have Caroline Kennedy, professor of war studies at Hull University. So let's first of all try to understand the problem. The Arctic is rich in resources. There's no doubt about that. But the point is that because of climate change, the region is opening up. And much of it is disputed, and I've been getting some explanations as to the various arguments that do exist. I'm standing at a table covered in maps, and uh, that's thanks to Bjarni Mao Magnusson, who's joined me from the University of Reykjavik. So thank you very much for uh, helping us understand what's going on here, because we're looking at a map with the North Pole right in the middle. And then There's a circle around that, and you can see the countries that are interested in this area. United States, Canada, Greenland, and Denmark is the protecting power there, so sort of Greenland, Denmark. And then you've got Norway and Russia. And they all have claims over parts of it. If you look at the North Pole itself, uh, Russia would say that's that's Russian. Uh, Greenland, Denmark would say it's Greenland, Denmark. Canada is preparing a submission to all the international bodies, which will say it's Canadian. So, I mean, there is actually, in the middle of it all, quite a problem. Well, yes, but maritime uh, boundary issues is not uh, only an an Arctic issue. It's a global issue, and states all around the world are negotiating uh, boundaries. And often it just goes very well. It's sometimes seen as a technical issue, not a, a political. And just as we look at the map and we see these overlapping claims with sort of whole areas of the sea claimed by each of the countries that are surrounding the North Pole. If the talks went well on this and the legal mechanisms worked, how long would it take to resolve who's got what? Uh, uh, Decades. (laughs) And uh, it's decades. Um, But uh, 
think about the importance. And like a decade for solving a boundary is perhaps not that long. A mere blink of an eye. <laughs> Bjarni Maier Magnusson there. First of all, let's just w- understand why the Arctic Circle is increasingly important to more and more countries. And perhaps, Rebecca Pinkers, you could start us off w- on this. Climate change is making a difference, isn't it? I mean, the ice is melting. Absolutely. The Arctic is warming faster than any other part of the globe. And the ice is retreating. There is less and less ice every year, and it's thinner and thinner. There's also a lot of change occurring on land, very important. The permafrost is thawing. Environmental systems are undergoing wholesale change. And this is interacting with, in a complex way, but to a certain extent triggering an increase in human activity across the region. Notably, there's a lot of discussion around the possibility for shipping into and across the Arctic region for increased tourism, oil and gas extraction, mining, development of all kinds. Yeah, lots of things. We're going to talk about those one by one, just so we can understand how the region is changing. Why don't we go to Heather Exner-Pirot now? Can you just talk us through, first of all, one of the things that is changing, shipping routes. And some people say this is you know, one of the most important things, that shipping routes are opening up. Mm-hmm. that have previously been frozen over. So what's opening up? Yes, the ice is receding. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's open waters and it's easy to get through. And everyone has to remember the Arctic is completely dark for three months out of the year. It is going to be iced over during winter for as long as humans uh, roam this earth. So it's not going to be accessible year-long ever. So sh- some shipping is increasing, but not all kinds. So it's it's by no means a done deal that shipping will increase at a fast rate. It's not going to compete with the Seaways Canal anytime in the foreseeable future. Okay, so but there is going to be more shipping going through, mm-hmm. and there are two possible routes in very general terms. There's the Northwest Passage, which takes you down by the United States and Canada, and right. then there's the, the another route which goes by Russia. Mm-hmm. Which is the more accessible? Right now, this is the Northern Sea Route, and they have almost they have had almost all the transit, all the volume. The Russian side. Um, there is a third route that I'll point out is the Transpolar Route, which one day, if the ice cap recedes, would be the easiest uh, route. Which right, that's right, right over, over the, the top. You sort of sail over the North Pole almost. That's right. And I just do, do want to point out with the destinational shipping on the Canadian side is now we can start exporting things from the Arctic, which there was never any railroads uh, to take out of there before. Lassie Heinen. The numbers uh, we are increasing, then they are a little bit uh, decreasing now. So it's going up, uh, going down. It is not going to be the, the Suez Canal or or other southern straits yet because the conditions are going to be harsh for several decades. But it's also worth making this point. The reason that people are interested in it is because it's cheaper. China to Hamburg, I think I read, it's 30% shorter distance. So it's, it's, it's quicker and it's cheaper, less fuel. It's shorter. It's not necessarily quicker. And it depends a lot on what your ice conditions are going through and in the time of year. So in container shipping, predictability is, is almost the most important factor. And so until it's more predictable, it probably won't become a large scale. Right now, it's more testing. Uh, companies like Costco, the shipping uh, company in China, are testing the routes. Uh, but it certainly has not become widespread yet. Does anybody have a different view of this? Does anyone think there's going to be more shipping than we're hearing uh, from Heather Exner-Pirot here? Rebecca Pinkus. While I don't think there's going to be massive increases in shipping anytime soon, the interest in shipping through the Arctic is also influenced by uh, geopolitical factors outside of the region itself. So thinking about the Suez as a primary shipping artery and shipping around the Horn of Africa, those routes go through areas that are occasionally inflamed um, by political activity. And so the pace of pirate activity 
off the east coast of Africa, the current unrest in the Middle East, if that spread to Egypt or became a much larger conflagration, we can imagine that um, instability outside of the Arctic could drive more interest in, in the Arctic region if shippers and insurers increasingly see those routes as a viable alternative. Is ice better than piracy. Right now, the piracy issue has gone down significantly, so it's becoming less interesting. Yeah, but you can't really imagine too many pirates operating in the Arctic, that's for sure. There is uh, this kind of uh, situation or opportunity that if technology will allow, and actually this has been started, that they are capable to build container ships and tankers with double deck and capability to go through ice. Then you don't need escort of uh, icebreakers, which is very expensive then it might become an alternative. It's probably just worth saying, I was actually with a shipping company in, in, in Reykjavik here yesterday, and they are very optimistic about this. I mean, they're looking a long way ahead, but they are saying they think this will happen and that there will be a lot more shipping on these routes. There will be technological challenges and there will be question marks about how much of the year they can use it, but they are thinking it's going to happen. Let's look at another area which is changing because of climate change, access to minerals. Now, am I right in saying it's mainly Greenland that would benefit from that or is that wrong? Well, I'm, I'm a Canadian, so I can tell you very much in Canada, there are developments already happening, especially in iron ore. Why Canada is mainly interested, we don't have a lot of oil and gas offshore actually in the Arctic, so that's not our prime interest there. Uh, but it's the mining and it's the, the new access. So you, you can't uh, ship it out by train. There aren't the railroads. There aren't roads even in a lot of places. Uh, but now there's the possibility of shipping out by ship, which is actually fairly efficient. So you think that's a more real prospect from the way you're talking than it's, the shipping? It's, it's not hypothetical at all. It is real. It's happening. And that's because land that was previously was under the ice, ice? Yeah, it was ice-locked, and now at least you can ship out. You know, ore is heavy, and it, and it takes a lot, so it, it's not easy to take out. Um. Uh, well, and we should not forget to Russia, the Russian Arctic. It's huge. And actually, their uh, mining and uh, transportation come together. They have transported the raw materials uh, from, from these uh, isolated regions there. And they are opening new mines there. So it's not only offshore oil and gas drilling in the, in the Russian Arctic. It's also mining. Yep, we'll talk about oil and gas in a minute. So we're making the point that mining minerals is a big deal. And uh, next thing, Rebecca Pingers, I know that you're not a, an expert on this, but you can talk about it in general terms. The fish stocks are changing. Scottish mackerel, I'm told, are now very common around Iceland because <laughs> they're chasing the colder water and uh, they're having to go north to find it. Yes, fish stocks are responding in complicated ways to the warming that's going on. There's, there's several different factors at play in the oceans. There's increasing temperatures, acidification is advancing, and um, there's some indications that fish stocks may be moving north. So there's um, a great deal of uncertainty about where some of the world's richest fish stocks, which are located in the Bering and Barents Seas, if they move north, what will be the extent of the movement? Will there be enough food production at lower levels of the food chain to support those fish stocks? Yes, I was having a very difficult ethical discussion with someone yesterday about whether a Scottish mackerel that's moved north and lived there for a year or two becomes an Icelandic mackerel. <laughs> Heather Axnapiro. Yeah, I do just want to point out just this summer uh, an important um, declaration, Oslo Declaration, on a, a high seas fishing moratorium. So in the central part of the Arctic Ocean, uh, which is far removed, you know, 200 miles or more from the states, uh, Norway, Canada, Denmark, uh, United States, and Russia did agree to not fish where they have not been fishing anyway. So there is no fishing in the high Arctic seas, but they all sat down and agreed that they would not fish there until there is a regional fishing management organization to regulate the high seas. I would like to remind the Cod 
between Iceland and UK a few decades ago. So, of course, it shows, it manifests how important fisheries is for Iceland. But then, on the other hand, we have had agreement between Norway and Russia already since 1970s on fisheries in the, in the Barents Sea when they couldn't solve their uh, disagreement on, on the self, but they could agree on fisheries. OK, so we've dealt very briefly with shipping routes, with minerals, with fish, and very briefly, tourism. I mean, there is more tourism now because of the increased accessibility, isn't there? Is that important? Rebecca Pinkus. It's um, important from a perspective of, of protecting the Arctic environment. There are increased interest in cruise tourism in the Arctic region, and we know that cruise ships around the world are getting bigger and bigger, and there have been too many high-profile cruise accidents or incidents in the last few years to note. Costa Concordia is obviously at the top of the list. If something like that happened in the Arctic Ocean, we'd probably be talking about body recovery rather than rescue efforts because the water's so cold that you can't survive for more than a couple minutes. And there are not currently uh, facilities and infrastructure in place to support a robust search and rescue capacity in the Arctic region outside of parts of Norway and the Nordic region. Um, So any kind of effective search and rescue capacity is very, very challenging. It's horribly expensive. The conditions are extremely difficult to operate in. And so as we look at increased interest in tourism, we need to balance that against um, what's going to happen in the case of some kind of incident. Next summer, Crystal Cruises is sending the largest cruise ship through the Arctic that's yet made the transit. There's going to be nearly 2,000 people on board. It's sailing from Alaska to New York through the Northwest Passage, and that raises a lot of important questions about search and rescue from a human security perspective as well as environmental security because those cruise ships, if there was some kind of incident that caused a release, we'd have a a multi-layered and very complex scenario. Okay. Uh, And let me just now move on to the the area that probably gets the most media coverage, which is oil and gas. And uh, as part of that, I'd like to introduce Shirley Marcourt. She is a mayor from an Alaskan city, Unalaska. And you are closely involved in this because you've had Shell near you, operating with you to some extent. We'll hear about that. And Shell have just pulled out a multi-billion dollar project looking for oil up near your part of the world, and they've, they've decided it's, it's just not economic, they're out. And then on top of that, we've got President Obama saying now that for the next 18 months or so, no new licenses are going to be sold. So this is quite a couple of big setbacks to oil production in the Arctic, or looked at the other side, great progress in terms of no oil exploration in the Arctic. So what is your take on what's been happening? Well, from the perspective of a seagoing community like Unalaska with the port of Dutch Harbor, we're the number one fishing port in the United States in terms of volume of fish. So we're already incredibly busy. So when the movement came by Shell to move into the Arctic, at first everybody thought, Dutch Harbor, why are you talking about being involved in the Arctic? You're 1,100 miles away from Chukchi where they're going to be drilling. And our answer was yes, but where else are they going to go? Nothing else exists on the West Coast that can handle those vessels and can handle the supplies and do the staging in advance. I think some people just assume that on July 1, when their permit allows them to be in the Arctic, they can just go up to the Arctic. But three years ago when they were there, I think that uh, they couldn't even get past Nome until the middle of July because the ice had moved down so far. So we saw a tremendous amount of business and activity from that industry, from a new sector. And it, it was a challenge at first, but we really engaged with them from day one 
and just encouraged them very, very strongly to talk to us constantly on every step of the way of what their plans were so that we could help that happen. Right. So you work closely with Shell. I mean, now that there is a lot of international opposition amongst environmentalists to this, this kind of drilling activity in the Arctic. What is your view? Well, my view in, in watching what they've actually done in the Arctic was, I thought, very positive. They certainly had a couple of setbacks. They knew they made some mistakes, and they brought in more Alaskans this next time that they came up, more robust presence of people with actual boots-on-the-ground experience right there. Right, So you, you're, and you're disappointed, and you're disappointed with President Obama's statements. I'm disappointed in the fact that I don't think they've really been allowed to show what they can do. Their safety program that they had from what I experienced in Dutch Harbor and in talking with those folks was extremely robust. They took it very, very seriously. And, you know, very frustrating to see somebody who's constantly jumping through regulatory hoops every time they, they made it through these three hoops. All of a sudden, magically, two new hoops showed up that they had to get through. So, it made it very difficult. How much opposition is there to this kind of drilling activity amongst indigenous people in your part of the world? You know, in my part of the world, down in the uh, the Aleutian Island region with the Yonongan Tununu, it's, uh, there really was no opposition at all. They could see clearly from the Kalingan tribe or the Unalashko Corporation that these jobs and this activity in the community was was very, very healthy for them. And they had the chance to kind of write their own destiny by engaging and working with Shell and their subcontractors from the start, which is what the city did. We went and looked at our planning and zoning. We said, where, where are areas we want to grow? Now, if you look up in terms, you go up towards Barrow, Wainwright, etc. up north, you, you find splits there. And you find villages and communities that are literally split down the middle. And it's become really uh, difficult for some even families have very strong differences of, of opinion. Okay, let's uh, let's hear a contrary view. This is a Greenpeace. They're here also in Reykjavik at this Arctic Circle meeting. And we can hear now from Ben Aliff. He's with the Greenpeace Arctic campaign, and I asked him for his reaction to the Shell decision to pull out, and particularly President Obama's announcement that there will now be no sales of drilling rights over the next 18 months. Well, I think it's good news for the Arctic because it means that there are less chances of, of people drilling for more of the fossil fuels that are causing the, the Arctic ice to melt. What is Greenpeace's sort of standing on this issue? What I mean by that is if local communities want economic development, uh, what right do you have to stand in their way? Firstly, I should say that Greenpeace aren't against developing the Arctic. We think that people that live there should be at the heart of decision-making and have every right to develop. What Greenpeace's is, is point really is, is that you cannot be drilling for more of the fossil fuels that are causing the Arctic to melt. And really, I don't think you're going to find many of the answers to the, the problems that the Arctic faces at the bottom of an oil well. Yeah, that's your view. But, uh, of course, local people may have a different view. It seems to me you're saying we are very... Uh, mindful of recognising the importance of local opinion as long as it agrees with us? No, not at all. We've, you know, we, we know that people disagree with us. That's, that's absolutely fine. And we believe, though, that, that the, many of the problems that the Arctic faces cannot be solved by uh, the Arctic people alone. Ultimately, you know, what happens in the Arctic will affect every person around the world. And that's why I think it's important that, that people have a voice from, from outside the Arctic. Now, this may sound rather rude, so forgive me, but a, a, one of the delegates here, an American academic, uh, went to study in Greenland mm. and told me she was rather shocked. The first thing she saw was a bumper sticker saying, F, Greenpeace. 
I mean, have you come across that real hostility to to, to your I've, I've role been, in this? I've been in Greenland myself. You know, I've been in a, in a Greenland jail for a couple of weeks, and it was um, an eye-opening experience. I can tell you that. And of, of course, you know, like I said, there are people who disagree with Greenpeace, and Greenpeace have done things wrong in the Arctic uh, in the past, and we've acknowledged that and apologised. And we are making real efforts to reach out to the Arctic peoples because, as, as I've said before, they have to be at the heart of decision making, and, and that's something that Greenpeace absolutely believes in. There we are. That's uh, Ben Ailiff from Greenpeace Mayor Shirley Marcourt. What's your reaction to what he said there? Well, some people have extremely strong opinions on uh, just the basic philosophy of if you don't take the oil out of the ground, you're not acerbating the problem already of, of climate change. And other folks say, well, you know, climate change is uh, part and parcel with just natural changes in the world on her own. You, you know, it's a very a lot of hubris for humans to think that they can actually change. So I, I leave those discussions to other folks. You know, in terms of being able to develop having the right you know, these these communities along the Arctic are so extremely self-reliant. They have to be out of sheer necessity. And it's very hard for them to take somebody coming and telling them, we're going to just clear this out. We're going to lock all this up because it's, you know, we want to keep it just the way it is. And we'll find something else for you to do. You'll, you'll be fine. Folks don't take terribly easily to that. Well, I can see that. But at the same time, Greenpeace have a point, don't they, when they say this is a global issue. So outsiders do have a, something to say because global warming affects everyone. Yeah, okay, that's true. I mean, you, I, I suppose you could use that uh, logic then. You could go around the world to all sorts of different developing countries and say, well, we don't, we don't want you to do that because we think you're going to affect us way over here. And, you know, we kind of start having, you know, pulling your own tail. Um, okay. Mixed the, feelings there. Those arguments go on. And uh, let me just uh, bring in Caroline Kennedy. You're going to talk a lot about the um, strategic implications of what's going on in the Arctic, but you just got a comment on this? It's just very interesting listening to colleagues and being here where the rights of the Indigenous people have been put right at the heart of this, this meeting. But it strikes me if you look at, for example, suicide rates, depressive rates, mental health issues amongst the Indigenous people, you know, colleagues here are making a point that development has to happen and has to be managed. And my impression, not being an expert in this area, is that the Indigenous people, for example, in Greenland, struggle struggle with the society, the community and the culture. And therefore it's that balance between you know, the rights of the global community to maintain a pristine space or exploit it in the way they want and the people that we, we are putting at the heart of the debate who seem to me to have a very different agenda, actually. I'm not quite following you there. Are you saying that the Indigenous people do want development or don't? Well, my impression from the conference is very much that development is at the heart of their ambitions as human beings to live better, to live longer, to live healthier, to be educated. And yet there is also a move in the conference hall to maintain a space in a pristine, historic manner. And I think it's that tension that we haven't resolved between the rights of the people to have every benefit that we might have, and yet this this very powerful push to maintain cultures and climates in a way that can no longer be maintained. You're listening to News Hour Extra with Owen Bennett-Jones on the World Service of the BBC. We have Lassie Heinehan from the University of Lapland. We have Heather Exner-Piro from the University of Saskatchewan. Rebecca Pincus, who's with the US Coast Guard Academy. Caroline Kennedy, Professor of War Studies at Hull University. And we have Shirley Marcourt, who's a mayor in Alaska. And uh, all discussing the issue of Indigenous people and what role they have in making decisions about their own development and to what extent the rest of the world has an interest in their decisions and therefore can interfere. So you wanted to respond to what Caroline Kennedy was saying, Mayor. 
I, I wanted to definitely agree. And in, in my state, in Alaska, we have uh, you know North Slope Borough, Arctic Slope Borough, uh, and different groups um, from ANSCA. And talking about the suicide rate, is it's just heartbreaking in the state. And when Shell was up doing all of their work, uh, even before they came up there to start to drill, they were hiring these young people to be logistics folks with them, to be to work as marine mammal observers on board the vessels. And just they had so many ways to encourage these young people who want to do something. You know, they want to be in this, engaged in this world around them. They don't have a chance otherwise. Okay, but can you show that the social indicators, suicide rates alcoholism rates, all these things, declined as a result of this activity? No, not at all. It's such a complex situation, and uh, it's one of the things that makes it heartbreaking. And I, I think, you know, really, truly, it needs to come from the Native community itself. No one's going to step in and fix this for them. But when you give opportunity, particularly to young people who live out in Barrow, but they've got smartphones, they know there's a huge world going on around them that they're not a part of. You give them those jobs, you give them hope. Heather Exnapira. I just want to say at these conferences we hear the term uh, what goes on in the Arctic affects the rest of us or what goes on in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. And I just have to say it, it's, it's got it backwards, completely backwards, that what happened in the South is what's affecting the Arctic now. So to think that the Arctic is the, the cause of climate change, it really raises my ire. So it's the activities that were in the South, they're now affecting the Arctic. What happened in the South didn't stay in the South. The Arctic is the victim, not the perpetrator. It's not oil drilling in the Arctic that caused climate change. We have a Greenpeace would say, it, yeah, it's crazy if you've got climate change to drill more oil. Well, I, I, I don't disagree with that. So where are they in the Gulf of Mexico? Where are they in the Middle East? Where are they with the with the new uh, Balkan play in the shale gas in the United States? To choose the Arctic, which, uh, um, uh, yes, developed nations, but the least developed communities in those developed nations and say, we're going to start with you. You're the first ones that have to stop oil and drilling. It's random, it's arbitrary, and it's not fair. Lassie Heinen. I agree totally that globalization has in- impacted the Arctic. Climate change, we think that it's, it's an Arctic issue, no, it's a global issue. Of course, now the globalist Arctic is uh, impacting uh, the rest of the, the world. And this is where I think that the, the Arctic can also become some sort of test ground, common ground for new kind of alternative way when it comes to offshore oil and gas drilling. I mean, we know that risks are so big and it's not going to be so profitable because it's going to be expensive. So that's why my point is here. Why don't we interpret an alternative way that leave it crown and try to create alternative resources for energy? Then we can have the Arctic as, as an example where you can do that. But will that happen? I don't know. We are talking about Shell, but we have to remember that most of the oil and gas companies in the Arctic are state-owned enterprises. So states are there behind, like Start Oil in Norway. So it's very much up how the Arctic states would like to develop it. Rebecca Pincus. I just want to offer a historical perspective. Social problems in indigenous communities in the Arctic are not new. As states were expanded through North America, through Russia, the state and capitalism in the North American side, the Soviet state structure and the Russian side, severely weakened indigenous social structures. Children were removed from their families. Religions were stamped out. Languages were stamped out. And so the social structures that had been sustained for millennia on subsistence lifestyles are severely weakened right now. And of course, there's social problems. And the idea that indigenous communities should be prevented from participating in the 
modern cash capitalistic economy is perhaps another evolution of that erasure of identity. The only meaningful way for indigenous societies to really enter strongly into the cash economy is going to be through resource extraction because there's not a lot of jobs in the Arctic. There's not a lot of other alternatives beyond extraction. Let's move this on and talk about the possible clashes between nation states in the Arctic. Because as we've said, Canada, Russia, US, Greenland, Denmark and Norway are all there. They all have interests. They have overlapping claims or disputes, depending how you look at it, as to who owns what. And there would seem to be potential for quite serious arguments between these countries. Uh, The talk, I must say, in this conference in Reykjavik is very much, oh, no, it's fine. It's all going to be cooperation. Everyone will talk. There'll be uh, dispute mechanisms in the international community, institutions that can sort this out. Uh, But some have their doubts. And Rob Hubert is one of them. He's an associate professor at the University of Calgary. And he's sceptical that the Arctic is different and can avoid the sort of conflict that's happened elsewhere on Earth. And before we hear from the professor, let's just remind ourselves how militaristic and militarised the Arctic used to be during the Cold War. An American naval task force cuts through the storm-whipped North Atlantic. Its destination, Arctic waters. With temperatures well below freezing point, the Arctic gives a chilly welcome to the Cold War. Heading into I think a lot of people got spoiled by the 1990s. Remember that the Arctic was a highly militarized region during the Cold War. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the expectation of the fact that the ice just made it so difficult for anyone else outside of those that could have very long-range bombers or nuclear-powered submarines, meant that nobody really was going there. And that meant that the Russians, of course, stopped going there because they were broke. Now, I think what we're seeing, and a lot of people are slowly and very reluctantly re-accepting it, is the fact that as the ice melts, as the Russians resume their military capabilities, the Arctic resumes its position just like any other space on the globe. And as the Arctic increasingly becomes rejoined because of climate change and resource development to the rest of the world, it will in fact become like the rest of the world. And so that this magic definition that so many of our... uh, our diplomats pretend are, in fact, the reality simply will be shown not to be true. I mean, within Canada and the United States, because of the increase of Russian behavior, particularly the increase of the uh, of the bomber patrols, um, and for the first time ever, we're seeing, along with those bomber patrols, we're seeing fighters, you know, we never even saw that during the Cold War. We're already seeing Canada and the U.S. having to uh, re-examine the modernization of their strategic um, uh, listening capability. We're also seeing, by the way, the Chinese starting to learn how to, to, to bring their military forces farther north than they ever have. We've had the very recent um, events in September where five um, uh, plan, uh, the People's Liberation Army slash Navy, sent five vessels up into the Aleutian chain off of Alaska. So we're seeing the, the Chinese also taking the first steps of how to familiarize their naval vessels of how to operate in the high north. Rob Hubert from the University of Calgary. So let's go to you, Heather Exner-Piro from Canada. There are potential disputes here, aren't there? 
Well, someone can tell me what war or conflict in the Arctic looks like, because I haven't heard a reasonable explanation. We say in Canada, if Russian troops landed on Ellesmere Island, the first thing we do is go rescue them, <laughs> because it's dangerous. It's about, it's about survival. There's no one taking over territory in the Canadian or Alaskan or Russian Arctics. We've had cooperation in the Arctic for 75 years, and still the narrative every year is that we're on some kind of brink of war. So before someone tells me there's going to be geopolitical conflict in the Arctic, where in the Arctic? What assets? Why and for what purposes? Well, presumably the argument is that if it opens up in the way that the scientists are telling us it will and the ice continues to melt, then it will become more possible for people to start fighting each other. Well, fighting over what? The the, uh, the oil, oil is on... gas, minerals. Let me tell you, and you know, every oil operation in the Arctic is worth multi-billion dollars. No one is going to start an operation before it's completely uh, secure and stable. No one's going to invest $10 million where there's a regulation. The other thing is everyone has an interest in the Arctic. Why it's different is because they have an economic interest in it being stable. They have an environmental interest in being stable. There are no interests that would be served by conflict. Well, exactly. I mean, the Arctic is, is different, and there are so strong common uh, interests. And when we think about eight Arctic states, there is so much at stake if they will rock the boat. I mean, the military structures are still there. Well, let's, let's hear more about that. We've, got, we've, we've been speaking to a Russian uh, official about this, and this is uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich Barbin. He's Russia's senior Arctic official. And uh, I've been asking him about uh, what Russia's intentions are. It was, of course, Russia that put this titanium flag catching media interest in 2007 on the floor under the seabed under the North Pole. I put it to him that the scale of Russian military activity in the Arctic uh, means that Russia could be accused of being somewhat belligerent. Our behaviour is a behaviour of a responsible country. And it is a, a responsible... Uh, answer to the challenges we face here. And I should say uh, not about any military threat. I am speaking that the Arctic is now opening for the commercial exploitation and we need to have capacity uh, to combat illegal, for example, fishing, possible oil spill, uh, terrorist threats and so on, and just to, to execute the operation for search and rescue. So we need to monitor what is happening in, in the Arctic. And it is not possible to achieve these goals without restoring military infrastructure, which has been lost to a great extent during the 90s. Our military presence in the Arctic has diminished drastically if you compare uh, its presence with the 90s and 80s. We are not going back to the Cold War. No, no at all. And they are not of attack nature. They're primarily of defence that's nature. Now, we have here at the conference the Russian who put the titanium flag under the North Pole, uh, which was described, I think, by one of the other uh, countries as a sort of 15th century act of colonialism. Uh, uh, what do you think? Uh, when we are speaking about this Putin flag on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, you could compare it with the American Putin flag on the moon. And it doesn't mean that it is a claim that moon nowadays belongs to, to the USA. Mind you, the media got quite interested. <laughs> I do think that everything which Russia uh, does uh, attract a lot of interest in the foreign media.
So that's Vladimir Vladimirovich Babin, who is Russia's senior Arctic official. So, uh, Professor Caroline Kennedy, you are very familiar with Russian foreign policy, Russian attitudes and activity. And you've heard the people who are experts here on the Arctic saying, no, it's so difficult in the Arctic, people have to cooperate. I mean, that's basically the argument. And that there's no way you can have conflict there because it's just too difficult. What is your take on it? Well, I think, firstly... Russia is rearming. There is no doubt about it. Uh, Heavy investment in air defence, air forces. We've seen this in Syria. There are a million men under arms, and Putin has made it very, very clear that um, indigenous Russians will fall under the new Russian rubric of sovereignty. So Georgia, 2008, Ukraine, which was described here as a civil war. Uh, That's debatable. And then, of course, the threats towards the Baltics. These are all indicators of an aggressive power. Now, Heather makes a very good point. What are you going to fight over? But conflict comes in many guises. So, for example, it might not be that you're going to fight over military assets, but there is certainly going to be intense competition as the high north melts over resources. The Russian economy is hugely dependent on this region. So my view would be that there is posturing at the moment, Heather's right, but the serious reinvestment in air capacity, which has even worried the Americans in terms of what they describe as the catch-up in Russian air power, almost said Soviet, sorry about that, but I think there are many parallels. And there's something else even more interesting, I think, which is going against the trend where, on the whole, um, Russian demography is of a key concern to the Kremlin, you know, falling birth rates, which were only reversed two years ago. There's been some very interesting movement of Ukrainians, Russians, up to Mamansk. They have been relocated out of a war zone up into Mamansk. Ukrainian miners are moving north. Now, there is no way that given the demography of Russia, that the old Soviet-style cities, which would have to be reinvigorated for that northern route to work in terms of transport. But nevertheless, Russian ambitions are, I think, deeply worrying. And if we come back to the Cold War, this was a heavy, heavily militarised area. Yeah, and just to, just to sort of hit this home, in terms of the military activity, there is now a Russian Arctic Command, that's new, and there are 10 military bases in the region that have been refurbished and two new ones have been built. So this is quite substantial activity. And if you listen to the rhetoric of um, the Russian official, I think it's very interesting. So what's been designated now, um, Owen made a joke earlier about pirates, they're talking on a routine basis about terrorism in the high north, about illegal trafficking of peoples and goods. So the rhetoric, the internal rhetoric in Russia sees the high north and the Arctic peoples as part and parcel of a Russian identity. And when there has been cooperation, I'm thinking particularly of the treaty with Norway on the Barents Sea, the internal dispute and disruption over that, it was regarded as a traitorous act to have come to that agreement. So I think it's a complex picture. Right. Professor Kennedy has set out her reasons for worrying about this. And uh, can, anyone, can anyone challenge that? The major military structures in the Arctic are the nuclear weapon systems of the USA and the Russian Federation. And those systems were built for the global balance. And that is still there, the deterrence. So that's why they are there. But then, uh, secondly, of course, economic interests. We are so often forgetting the capacity of Russia to go to the North Pole or the Arctic Ocean whenever because of the nuclear icebreaker fleet. That is not military. 
but it's it's because of economic interest. And Russia is the only Arctic state who, who is so much depending on the uh, Arctic zone economically. Okay, so just to explain that, you're saying that these military assets they have in the region and they're increasing them have a commercial aspect. And it, for instance, military icebreakers have commercial benefits. No, no. I said that the icebreakers are not military. They are part of the fleet to keep open the Northern Sea Route, for example, for commercial purpose, for transportation, nothing to do with the military. So so Russia is very much depending economically of the, the Russian Arctic zone. I agree. I think there's no question that Russia is reinvigorating its its military. That's, I think, unquestionable. But I think in the Arctic region, Russia's interests are really economic. The About 15% of Russia's economy comes out of the Arctic. So it's hugely important for the Russian state right now. And I think it's important to parse the kind of discourse around militarization because, for example, the U.S. is talking about um, putting in more infrastructure in Alaska, a deep water port, airfields, hangars. From some perspectives, from Russian perspectives, for example, that's perceived as militarization of the Arctic by the U.S., Canadian um, political calls for development and infrastructure development similarly can be perceived either way, depending on where you stand. Yeah, but that's the point, isn't it? That everyone's everyone's piling in. But I think the real key is that if we're looking primarily at the Arctic as a very promising realm for economic development, assuming states want to follow that path, boundaries in the Arctic are almost all settled. There are very few remaining boundary disputes. Yes, there are some unsettled boundaries along the extended continental shelf that may be of interest in decades hence for resource extraction. We do not yet have technology to extract resources from deep water in Arctic conditions. We have every indication that Russia and all other Arctic states will be pursuing established legal mechanisms through the International Commission on the Limits of the Extended Continental Shelf to settle those ECS disputes. I I take the point that there are institutions there and they're being used by all the people at the moment, uh, all the nations involved. But I I, I just don't understand this idea that that the disputes are tiny. I mean, when I was shown that map by that professor Mm. from the University of Reykjavik, I mean, they're absolutely massive disputes. There are whole areas of the, the Arctic which are disputed. And everyone seems to be saying it's not a problem. I don't understand it. I, I, I think it's job security for diplomats for, for, for eons to come. But it is of interest to those of us in Alaska. We're very, very close to the Russian border. And in my community, we have a very close association with Russia going back uh, several hundred years. And, you know, if you look through our phone book in, in Alaska, Shaisnikovs, Shapsnikovs, Galatnikovs, Krukovs, everywhere. I'm, I'm hopeful if there are any conflicts, we're going to be okay because we're already part, of, you know, part Russian. I heard, uh, you know, Caroline's point before, and I always like to say the only people that think there's going to be conflict in the Arctic are the experts on Russia, not the experts on the Arctic. And the reason for that is it's huge. Look at the geography. Look at the geology. So you say, you know, there's disputed areas. Look at the map. The continental shelf claims are huge. These countries are getting a new ocean. 90% of the ocean is going to be divided up. The part where there's an overlap is very small, maybe 3%. It's over the Lomonosov Ridge. So Russia has 50% of the Arctic. It has more Arctic than it knows what to do with. Canada has more Arctic than it knows what to do with. There'd be no reason to fight over resources because they're barely tapping it, you know, into a tiny fraction of what they already have. But I think we need to think longer term. And the Russians always 
have thought longer terms in terms of their planning and their geopolitics. And so my warning is very much, if you look, for example, at ballistic missile defence construction by the Russians, why are they concerned over these issues? And so is there a greater longer-term game being played? So 20% of Russian GDP comes out of the area. You made the point yesterday they own 50% of the turf. How much more might they get? I mean, if you think a generation hence... Of course, I mean, these claims are huge and so on. But of, of course, like the Icelandic expert said earlier, uh, it's a global issue. I mean, all, all the oceans of, of the earth, uh, you have the same situation. Uh, but there are these, these rules. The Convention of, on the Law of the Sea says that there are rules. And so far, they have played by the rules. But I th- you see, what's interesting is why the Arctic is different from the Antarctic. You know, we've got a treaty in the South that is protected territory. And yet I've heard no serious discussion about that kind of treaty for the Arctic. Now, why is that? There's a, a, a million reasons. The top three, one, the Antarctic is a continent and the Arctic is an ocean. Two, the Antarctic is uninhabited. The Arctic is inhabited. Three, the Antarctic isn't a state. The Arctic is ruled by eight states, five in the ocean. Those are all the great reasons. I don't know why people think there's a magic in a treaty. States in our system are still the ones that implement and regulate and monitor. But you've just reversed the argument because my argument would be exactly the problem is state rights and sovereignties which are contested in that region, which is how conflict historically arises. So on the one hand, you can't say we rely on a treaty in one place, but states trump that treaty because this is, I think, the confusion we've had at this conference over the status of this global commons, which actually the Russians, for example, don't believe is a global commons. And I'll tell you, the Canadians don't either. And uh, nobody has a better interest in cooperating in the Arctic than Canada and Russia because we stand to gain tremendously. The Antarctic Treaty system was signed in 1959 at the height of the Cold War, and there were far fewer major states really driving that discussion. And today, any discussion of the Arctic is incomplete without talking about the role of China, particularly if, if we're taking a generational perspective. Yeah, well, that's good. I wanted to move on to China because uh, they're, they're, they're very much involved. They call themselves a near-Arctic power, which is quite difficult to get your head around. And they are very much present in all these uh, forums now discussing mm-hmm. the Arctic. And the Chinese are backing it up with military activity of some kind, trying to get their ships up there, get used to the Arctic. So what's going on with China? I mean, what I hear is that the Chinese are economically penetrating, for example, Greenland. And so in a way, we're talking also about different types of potential conflict. You know, and I'd be very interested in the rate of Chinese investment in the Greenland economy. Absolutely. I think um, this is Rebecca Pincus. one of the side effects of the Western sanction regime that was imposed on Russia recently was to drive Russia into the arms of the waiting Chinese who have signed a series of energy deals. Um, And China has very effectively been playing a a sort of grand strategic game here of signing bilateral trade arrangements and developing bilateral relationships with the Arctic states, notably Russia and the Nordic states. It's now got free trade arrangements with Iceland and I, I believe some of the other Nordic states as well. It's cooperating economically. It's pursuing its very effective mercantilist strategy around the Arctic. And I think that raises some important questions about do we need to be looking at militarization per se, or should we be looking at the economic strategy that may be more relevant in today's world where there aren't really conflicts? Well, uh, talk about uh, China. I would like to remind that actually the Arctic states very much uh, 
invited China and other other countries outside the Arctic region to come and make research when when the International Polar Year, the 2006-2007 was, and then China China took the invitation and and established a research station in in Svalbard. So research is very important there. I, I'm not naive enough to think about that they are not interested in energy and economics. I understand being so many times in China discussing with them, they are very interested in to know how climate change, what are the impacts of climate change in the Arctic to the mainland of China. And another thing is the Antarctic. China is investing so much more research in the Antarctic, and that is actually the ultimate aim to know more about the Arctic and develop systems, methods, technology for the Antarctic. Because when the treaty how to freeze uh, the utilization of natural resources in the Antarctic will be opened 2048, then they are ready. Well, that's very interesting. Everyone's nodding that that's China's long game is yeah. Ant- Antarctic. Yeah. I just have to say, I don't, I don't understand why there would be suspicion of China wanting to invest and, and extract natural resources from the Arctic. The Arctic is a resource sector. It's a periphery. What it can do is export commodities. China has the money to buy commodities and the demand for it. It's a perfect match. Canada is a resource exporting country. Below, south of the 60th degree, we try to get Chinese investment all over the place. It makes no sense to say, oh, but north of the, of the 60th parallel, we don't want Chinese investment. No, definitely people want it. Mayor Markov. Well, and even in Alaska and far-flung, you know, Aleutian Islands, we had uh, uh, Singaporean Ambassador Sirike come out and spend three days looking, you know, and saying, I've got billions of dollars to invest, and clearly, uh, you know, I want to invest in Arctic development, and you're going to be part of that, because anything that goes up there from the U.S. side is probably going to go through our port. So, uh, Did you relieve him of any of his dollars? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but you're working on it. Okay, well, look, thank you all very much. It's an extremely complex issue. It's a fascinating issue. It's a new issue, and it's obviously going to become a more important issue as the climate change effects take grip. So thank you very much for helping us understand it. Uh, don't forget, if you want to get the podcast for news hour extra you won't get it if you just subscribe to news hours podcast so you need to uh, go to your search engine and put in bbc news hour extra podcast google or whatever and it will take you there and then you can subscribe to it one hour each week with one topic discussed uh, thoroughly i hope and uh, comprehensively i hope uh, also email us bbc news hour extra at gmail.com twitter bbc nh extra at bbc nh extra and many thanks to Lassie Heidenen, to Heather Exner-Piro to Rebecca Pincus, to Caroline Kennedy and to Mayor Marcourt and that's it for now, thanks for listening from Reykjavik, this is Owen Bennett-Jones goodbye